1 Corinthians chapter 1, what we're going to be doing today is having an Easter primer. We're going to be doing an in-depth uh, teaching <clears throat> excuse me, for our evening service tonight on Palm Sunday, but we're going to be doing a primer for this Easter here today. Again, as you arrive, if you arrived here today without a Bible, there should be one in front of you underneath the seat. If there isn't, if you need a Bible, you can raise your hands and the ushers will bring one to you. And if you do have one sitting on your lap, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Today's going to be more of a topical twist, so we'll be in a few different areas today. <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's all in the matter of perspective. The message of the cross, the message of the cross that God would send a son, that son would be crucified upon the cross. Well, for those who are perishing, that's foolishness because, well, in their mindset, what does that accomplish? Everybody's perishing. You have a philosopher with a philosophy and all of the past philosophers and their philosophies have all fallen apart at the point of death. And now you've got this one philosopher with this philosophy and you're telling me he's going to die. What's the difference between him and anybody else? Well, that's the perspective. That's the perspective that we have because our philosopher, the Lord Jesus Christ, so much more than a philosopher, but nonetheless, the Lord Jesus Christ, his message, it all started at the point of death. It meets us at death. Matter of fact, we know it has given us everlasting life. But again, it's all from the point of the perspective. I I pointed out so often the local mountain range because it's there. It's there and on a clear day, it's in your face. And if you would look at it, you would see that it's a series of peaks off to the left. And you can't really see it from here. I can see it from my house over near Mountain Avenue, but kind of hidden behind is the tallest peak. That's Mount Baldy, if my geography is correct here. Then after that would be Ontario Peak. And then there is Cucamonga peak. And again, it's neat on a clear day. You can see their beauty, you can see their majesty, and you can see their just the overall bigness of them before you. But for the most part, as they are there, the majority of us see them, but we don't really see them. You may say, oh, look at the mountains and then just kind of sort of leave it at that. Why do I bring them up from time to time? Because maybe they're a little bit more special to me than they might be to some of you. The one that really grabs my attention is Cucamonga Peak. I was in the dental office, and my dentist is up in, in, uh, in Upland, and all of her offices face the mountains there. So while you're being tortured, you can look at the mountains. And, and then I always look at them, and I'll see Ontario, and I'll see Cucamonga Peak, and I remember Cucamonga Peak because I've been there. I've been there. One day in 2008, I walked with a friend. We climbed about seven miles, going up about 3,000 feet in elevation, and we stood on that peak. We stood up there, and as amazing as they look from the perspective of down here and the view that we have of them, the perspective of the peak is even more spectacular. That day, there was a few scattered clouds, and you even felt like you were above the clouds up there. You could see all the way to Catalina and really even beyond. And again, we're just on top of that, looking at this massive humanity and the neighborhoods and all. But my point here is, is that the view from the source is very special. Well, it's the same with the cross. 
Many saw it, many see it, but to experience it is to know and understand its beauty, its majesty, and the magnitude of it. Think of it. Whenever you see those three crosses together, isn't there something special about that? We were having an Easter play, and there's one guy who was kind of over all the building of the scenes and, and everything. He couldn't get to the crosses, and they wanted three crosses that were you know, well, about six feet. I think they were even a little bit taller than that. And he couldn't get to it, and he didn't have time, and he was stressing about it. So I went, and I bought the wood, and one day I just went back there, and I, I built them. We put them in a platform. If Some of you may remember, others may never have seen them, but we had the main cross obviously in the middle, the next one just below that, and the other one just below that. And I can remember looking at them like I had had them set up in the warehouse, and I would go back into the warehouse, and you would see them, and there's just something about the sight of those three crosses that just just grip you. And so we were here on Sunday, and I was talking, his name was Jimmy, and I was talking to Jimmy about it, and he goes, I just can't get to the cross. I go, Jim, I did it for you. I got got them done. He goes, really? I go, yeah. And so we go back there, and I'll never forget, he just stopped, and his mouth dropped open, and he started, he didn't break down sobbing, but he started crying. And there's just something about, and it wasn't all about just because he didn't have to build them, there's just something about the sight of crosses, those three crosses, that are just very special. So to start out this Easter week, I want to start from the perspective of the cross, that we would have proper perspective of what is going on this week. Tonight we're going to start the series starting with uh, uh, the uh, triumphal entry with Palm Sunday, and then Thursday we're going to look at a different perspective. Friday, we have Good Friday service, and then Sunday morning. But again, it's important to understand this primer, this understanding of the perspective that we need to see what is going on this week. Not so much with a sermon that I am going to preach, but I want to look at the sermon that the cross preaches. The sermon that was preached from the cross. All things that the cross speaks concerning the things that occurred upon it. And really, it's the blood and the cross that preach this sermon in conjunction with each other. It was the sermon for the ages. It was the sermon that was above all sermons. There's the Sermon of the Mount that came from the Lord that is generally considered to be the greatest sermon ever given. But the Sermon of the Cross, it it speaks of greater things than even that. Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, the greatest sermon ever spoken from American soil. Well, it pales in comparison to the sermon that was preached upon the cross. Now the blood, yeah, the blood preaches that sermon. The blood had preached an earlier sermon, though. In Genesis chapter 11, I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 4, verses 11 through 12, the sermon that the blood preached then says, So now you are cursed from the earth which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you till the ground, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. The sermon that the blood of Abel speaks is one of sin, it's one of vengeance, it's one of punishment, and it's one of retribution. The response of the first hearer of that sermon, the first listener of that sermon, well, it was more than he could bear. 
Here's the blood, his brother's blood. It's crying out, and he is the one who had spilled his brother's blood. This would be Cain, and as he's hearing this sermon being preached, he's hearing of this separation from God. He's understanding that the rest of his life is never going to be the same. It's what sin. It's what sin has. Well, it's the sin that has just absolutely ruined his life and wreaked havoc of all of mankind's life. In Genesis chapter 4, verses 13 through 14, And Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Surely you have driven me out this day from the face of the ground. I shall be hidden from your face. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond on the earth. And it will happen that anyone who finds me will kill me. Today, the blood of the sermon from the cross, it speaks a much better sermon. It speaks of much greater things. No longer does it preach of a curse, but it speaks of the blessings. Not the curse of mankind, but the blessings that come from God. Turn your Bibles now to Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22. The writer of Hebrews had been talking about the giving of the law. Verse 21 says, And so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I'm exceedingly afraid and trembling. On Mount Sinai, there's the giving of the law, and the earth was quaking, and the thundering was loud, and it was all speaking of the power of God, but the power of God for the purpose of judgment. And we enter into verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. We haven't come to Mount Sinai. We have come to Mount Zion. But you have come to Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are registered in heaven to God, the judge of all and the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel. So the cross and the blood speak a sermon that man is now free, or at least can be made to be free. No longer is he a vagabond upon earth, but now we are people who have a home on our home in heaven. It's no longer about just having absolutely no hope, but it's in this great hope that God has given us because of the cross, because the blood flowed upon the cross. Man is not driven out any longer, but he is brought in, not hidden from the face of God, but now the face of God shines upon us all. And although our due punishment was greater than we can bear, the Lord has taken it upon himself for the purpose of mankind's salvation. It's that one point in history that altered the course of the world. Even if you're an unbeliever here sitting today, you cannot deny that the crucifixion, it altered the course of the world. It's the coming of Christ that we even, well, we even called 2014, 2014. It was a reality that occurred some point in history and changed mankind. The blood and the cross do speak, And they speak of the good news that man so desperately needs to hear. Just as we saw in that short, silly video that we just looked at, rich in truth. So the first point, 
The first point in this sermon that the cross and the blood spoke, the first point in this sermon from the cross makes is, is the importance of mankind in God's sight. God wants you to know, regardless of who you are, how important you are in His sight, whether, whether believer or unbeliever, because God died while we were still in our sins. He saw the importance of us. He saw the importance of mankind. Check it out. Have you ever noticed how the blood of the Lamb did not flow for creation? There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth because this one is going to pass away. The blood did not flow because of animals or the cosmos. The blood of the Lamb, it flowed for me and it flowed for you. The blood of the Lamb, it did not flow for fallen angels because that's what hell was originally created for. It was created for the fallen angels or the demons. The blood, the blood of the Lamb did flow for mankind, and it flowed for mankind only. Again, it flowed for you. You have to make it personal because Jesus Christ is our personal Lord and Savior. As He was upon that cross, as He was bleeding... Now, when we speak of blood, it's not just because there was the presence of blood. The blood speaks of the death upon the cross. He was up there and He was dying for you so that you would not have to die. Christ died at a point in history so that I would not have to die slowly for eternity, a death that would never be ending. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slack concerning His promises, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering towards us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The Lord wants all of mankind to come to repentance. And so that's why he was crucified in such a public manner. Why that pulpit of the cross was revealed throughout all of the ages. So that again, even as you're mentioning what date the date is, you're always referring back to the cross. A Christian, I'm always referring back to the cross because of my imperfections, because of my failures, because of... Well, because of that's where my life was truly changed even before I was born. All humanity refers back to that point of history. All humanity sits before the cross in order to hear this sermon and make a determination. Christ preached it in such a public manner because he was not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. In Ezekiel chapter 33, verses 10 through 11, Therefore you, O son of man, say to the house of Israel... Thus you say, if our transgressions and our sins lie upon us and we pine or we rot away in them, how can we then live? Say to them, as I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn, turn from your evil ways, for why should you die, O house of Israel? We can so look at the wicked and see, well, they just got what they deserve, but in God's sight, at there was a point in your life that you were wicked as well. And God had no desire that you would perish, but instead, He took all of your sins at that one point in history and placed them upon Himself. And again, it speaks of the intense love that God has for mankind. Jesus said, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto Myself. Now, a lot of people have said that before they went and preached the sermon, we need to lift up Christ. And that's not a bad thing, but that's not what he's talking about. He was talking about his crucifixion. I will draw all men to myself. Jesus later said, nobody can come to me unless my Father in heaven draws them. How does God draw mankind? He drew mankind through his expression of love upon the cross. 
even as I brought Jimmy back to the warehouse and he saw the cross, why would it have such a profound effect upon him? Why would it have such a profound effect upon me? Because it's there that I see the love of Christ. I don't worship uh, two pieces of wood that are nailed together, but it, it leads me to the cross of Christ. And that event that occurred so long ago that continues to have an effect upon mankind. We live in a postmodern society, as I pointed out many times, when most people believe that they can pick and choose their own truth. But we have the truth, the truth that comes from God. And truth, well, truth by its very nature cannot be picked and chosen. Truth, there can only be one truth. Anything else is a contradiction to it. And the truth that I see that is contained in the scriptures is that God loves me to such a degree that he would go to that cross and that he would die for me. With this thought, consider something that Jesus said in Mark chapter 8, verse 36 through 37. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? What will a man give in exchange for his own soul? Joining together what Jesus said here and what the cross tells us, the immortal souls of men are valuable and dear to the Lord. The souls of mankind are that which are valuable to the Lord. Are you going to go out and exchange that for something else? Are you going to go out and exchange your relationship with Jesus Christ for that which the world has to offer? The world's got a lot of attractive things. There's no doubt about that, but it's no different than my fishing lures. Fishing lures, at some point the fish makes the determination, that's something that I'm going to partake of. That looks like a really good morsel. And he goes and he partakes of it, and right away, it's not quite what he thought. It's plastic. And as a fisherman, as soon as you feel that tug, you've got to set the hook. Because once the fish senses that it's plastic, that it's not anything real, he's going to spit it out. But if you're quick enough, he gets that, which a Lord is designed to do. He gets the hook that leads to his detriment. And it can be the same thing with the attractions of the world. It looks so good. It looks so attractive. But once we start partaking of it, well, it's not really all that we thought it was. But at that time, a lot of times it's too late because the hook gets set. What am I going to give in exchange for the soul? What is there that is of any value that I would give of my soul for that? So much in this world is important, but nothing is as precious as the souls of mankind. It's why in either the Old Testament or the New Testament, we have been commanded to holiness for the keeping of our souls. That I would be separated from the world and the things of the world. That I would keep my soul set before my Lord Jesus Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 25, For you were like sheep going astray, but now have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. Your soul is the essence and the nature of who you are. It's the nature and essence of who you are. Outwardly, this body, that's why God leaves the body behind. He could care less really what you look at. I think God, for some of us, has... Pretty good, pretty good time there. Let's make a mic. Okay, first of all, you know what? We've given hair to so many other people. Let's take the hair off of this one. <laughs> and the angels are back there snickering. It's never about the outward appearance of who we are. This body, this body, again, is dying. It's rotting away. There's no doubt about that. But it's the soul, the soul of man, the nature and the essence of who you are that is of tremendous value to God. I can't tell you how many times I have read the account of Noah. 
the man who went and built the ark, and, well, you know the story, and I, I've known of that, and I've read it, and I've studied it, and I've taught it, and, well, just the name Noah, it just, just leads me back to the, the flood and, and all of the things that most of you probably think when you hear that name. Well, now it means something completely different to me. Noah, well, that's the name of my grandson. And it speaks of the nature and the essence of who he is. And the love that I have for him, and there's a connection that is there that I'd be willing to give all for, this, for my grandson. It, it carries a whole different connotation than it used to because, again, now it's been personified by somebody, and that's how God feels about you. Willing to give all for you. We, we looked at it last week in Philippians chapter 2, that Christ would set aside some attributes of his of his godship and come in the appearance of a man, even a slave, to die upon the cross because of that great love which he has for you. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Whatever else you may possess in this world, whatever the world may give you, a day is coming when every single one of us is going to be, uh, is going to be reviled for all that, even of the body. I'm sorry, relieved of all of that, even of the body. We will have to leave it behind. And the soul and spirit will go out and go on. This is the thing that matters, says the cross. The Lord is there because of the value he places upon the souls of men. It's because of your soul, the nature and the essence of who you are. Christ desired relationship with that. Christ went to the cross, and so the cross and the blood, it preaches a sermon of the value of mankind. And I don't even leave it at mankind, the value of you. Second point of that sermon, sermon of the cross, it speaks of the fundamental nature of sin. The fundamental, fundamental nature of sin is rebellion and re- <laughs> rebellion and breaking of fellowship with God. It's rebellion against God and it's the breaking of fellowship with God. That's why Adam was cast out of the garden, and there was a guard set at the garden, because he could never really enter back into that relationship with God until the cross of Christ. Adam, Adam is probably one of the most patient people in the Scriptures, because he's the one who waited in Hades the longest. Hades, again, that compartment for those who died. Now, this is the good side of Hades. Um, as man died before the cross of Christ, he would go to Abraham's bosom until the price for sin was paid and then the gates were open. Adam was in there the longest. Of course, he's the one who got us into this mess anyway. But don't laugh because it was you, it'd be even worse. What was one of the statements that Jesus cried out from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Remember what he said earlier in John chapter 10, verse 30? I and my Father are one. I and my Father are one. Why were they one? Because, well, Jesus is God, and he's living a perfect life. He's never sinned. But then he goes to the cross, and all of a sudden, it's, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? At what point was he forsaken? Well, the cross tells us it was there because Jesus took sin upon himself for us that fellowship with the Father was broken. Matter of fact, he didn't just take my sin. He took the sins upon the world, all the sin past, the sins of the day, and the sins future, all upon him. And just as Adam lost fellowship with God, Jesus, in essence, was losing fellowship with God. Now, again, it's a thing that's hard to wrap your mind around. Jesus being God, always being God. How could he lose fellowship with God? But the picture is there. 
The picture is there in his very words, leading us back to Psalm 22, no doubt, but also so that we would understand once sin is taken upon you, you break fellowship with God. It's what grieved the heart of the Lord in the garden. Again, it's why he sweated blood. It wasn't about the torture that he was to endure, at least not the physical torture. It was the spiritual torture. It's a miracle that is occurring upon the cross. Here's Jesus for the very first time, and keep that in perspective. Jesus, who had always been in existence for the very first time, is feeling the effects of sin. I mean, that's just mind-boggling if you, if you really sat and, and really thought about that. For the first time at any point in history, Jesus is feeling the effects of sin. He knew what was going to occur upon the cross. It was hours before the crucifixion, and he's in that garden, and he's praying, if there be any other way, allow this cup to pass from me. Now, if it was me or if it was you and we knew what was coming because of crucifixion upon the cross, I'd be concerned about the scourging and the nails and the torture and all of that. But that wasn't about what Jesus came for and that wasn't about this punishment. Really what it was, it was about the sin. The sin that he was going to take upon himself for, again, all of mankind. The cross and the blood tell us not to think of sin in terms of actions or deeds, thoughts or words, But what sin really is, is man breaking relationship, breaking his relationship with God, and even setting himself up as a small g God, making himself as God, making himself the ruler of his life. And that's what people are doing. I don't know why I'm pointing at the screen, but that's what people are doing when they're trying to work for their own salvation. They're setting themselves up as their own Messiah. The problem is, Jesus, he didn't have to pay any price for his own sin so he could pay the price for everybody else's sin. You, you're always going to be paying the price for your sin. And let's just say you're a really good person according to human standards. Your whole life you only committed one sin, whatever that might be, just one sin. You told a lie once. But that one sin is enough. It's defiled you before God because God demands perfection. As God demands perfection, and we can't deliver perfection, we spend eternity trying to pay the price. See, if you want to work for perfection and you fall short of that, you will spend all of eternity trying to achieve perfection, which you still will not be able to achieve. It's only one sin that keeps us from from the presence of the Lord. And so the existence of sin, it speaks volumes on the nature of our relationship. We are in rebellion of our very because of our very nature. And so when I repent of my sin, on that day that I repented of my sin, now repentance is something that I do on the day that I was saved, but it's also something that I do for that cleansing after I'm saved. But on that day that I was saved, what was I really repenting of? Well, the church that I attended before says, you got to make a list. you got to make a list. And you go to confession and you say, well, I lied four times and I did this and I did that. Well, you know what? I was lying when I was going in there. Because, yeah, I committed sins, but I don't know what I did. How am I supposed to remember all of them? And if I tell this guy everything, he's going to go running screaming out of that confessional and call the police on me. And so I would just make stuff up. And, you know, it made him happy. It made me happy. I'd go say my Hail Marys and be on my way and hopefully never sin again, which didn't really work either. And so confession of sin, repentance of sin. On the day I was saved, I was not repenting of all those little things. I'm repenting of my nature. I'm repenting of my sinful nature. It says that, that uh, 
that tax collector that was next to the Pharisee in the temple. The Pharisee, thank God I'm not like this guy, but the, the tax collector understood, Lord, just forgive me a sinner. He didn't say of this sin, of that sin, and all those sins. He said, forgive me because I'm simply a sinner. And for salvation, that's the conclusion that you need to come to, that I'm just a sinner. Lord, I've tried all of my life. I try to be a good person. But whenever that one particular issue, whatever that issue may be, that causes me to stumble, I'm a slave to it, Lord. I'm a slave. And I've tried with all of my might and all of my power, but all of my might and all of my power isn't enough to overcome that. Lord, I need you. And Lord, I I repent and I I don't want to do these things anymore. And so I come to the cross. I come to the cross that you would give me grace, that you would give me mercy and your love and the Holy Spirit, that Lord, I may be able to overcome that, but Lord, that you would overcome because I'm recognizing that it's only you that can overcome this sinful nature. And when the sinful nature is dealt with, then we move on in discipleship from there. I move on in a continuous process of holiness. I pray that I'm more holy than I was yesterday and I will be more holy tomorrow than I am today. Holiness is simply separated from the world and the things of the world. There's going to be three steps forward and two steps backwards at times, but am I continually to press forward? Am I continually pressing on? If I am, that tells me that I have that heart that has been changed. I have that heart that God has done a work in and I'm moving forward in that. I can so say, well, that's just who I am or that's just how I am, but my Father has made me into somebody new and somebody different, and I need to embrace that, and I need to hold on to that. I need to make that an important aspect of my life. And so we have the cross that it preaches this sermon of the importance of mankind. It speaks of the nature of sin. And then thirdly, third point that the sermon of the cross makes is the necessary judgment and punishment of sin. God had to judge and he had to punish sin. If you get nothing out of this sermon today, get this. We know that God is holy and he hates sin. His wrath is upon sin. We know that Jesus died because of sin, although he never sinned. And we know that sin needs to be seen as the most serious matter that has ever entered into the whole universe. We need to recognize that sin exists. And so many churches, it's don't preach about sin. You guys got to come in here and feel good. Well, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, I hope upon leaving here you feel horrible. Because it would be a travesty if you left this place apart from Christ feeling good about yourself. Feeling good about yourself will only lead to hell. Understanding who you are and the necessity for repentance in a relationship with Jesus Christ, that will bring you into the presence of God. Sin needs to be seen as the most serious matter that has ever entered into the whole universe. Every misery and tragedy that has ever existed, it always goes down to that root cause of sin. Now, in the first chapter of Genesis... If you look at that, we're not going to turn there, but that first part, we see that God spoke all that we see into existence, just simply through the sound of his voice. When he created, the word used is bara in the Hebrew, and that word bara means to create from absolutely nothing. Nothing. I can create a lot of things, but I can't create something from nothing. But God was able to create these things just simply through his spoken word. But when it comes to sin, well, his word was enough. It's the power of God. He speaks it and creation appears. 
Appears? Appears. <laughs> but notice this. Don't, don't get, let this get lost in my coming into pure puberty here. Notice this. God could not forgive sin by speaking it away. He could have, but he couldn't have. He could have. Well, I truly believe that God can do anything, but I believe that the reason he didn't is because it was contrary to his nature. That's what I mean when I say he couldn't have. There, it's possible for him to do it, but because of his nature, he couldn't, he couldn't do it. The cross tells me that the blood preaches to us something needed to be done. Something needed to be done. I, I don't know where I got this quote from, but it says, what does the cross tell us in this matter? Before God can forgive any sin to any man, his only begotten son had to leave the courts of heaven and come down on earth and take on human nature and live as a man and be stricken, smitten of God upon that cross. And the cross proclaims the holiness of God, the reprehensions of sin, and the terrible seriousness of man's rebellion against God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 19 and 21, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So all that being the case, the, the cross asks you, what is your relationship to God? Because he couldn't just say, all right, everybody, you're all forgiven. Try better tomorrow, and we'll come back and see how it's going then, and if you mess up again, I'll, I'll proclaim another mass forgiveness. Well, that's usually what people believe. The false gods that they've developed in their own mind, well, my God would never judge anybody. But God, in his mind, because of his nature and his sense for justice, something, somebody, somebody had to pay the price. And this leads us to our fourth point, fourth point of this Sermon from the Cross, why something needed to be done and not said. Why did something need to be done and not said? In order to be just, punishment had to be given for sin. Punishment had to be given for sin. If the punishment isn't given, then there's really no justice. And if there's no justice, then there's no forgiveness. And if there's no real forgiveness, we're dead in our sins and our trespasses. In order for grace and mercy to even exist, punishment has to exist as well. How can God be gracious if there's no punishment? If there's no punishment, we're just skipping through our lives doing whatever we fleshly want to do. And we can say grace, we can say grace, but we don't even recognize grace. You won't even look to the cross. The sermon that is preached from the cross, if there's no punishment, if there's no judgment, you're not going to even stand around long enough to listen to it. You definitely wouldn't be here today. I'm saved. What do I need to go to church? What, 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 why do I need to be a witness? Why do I need to share my faith? Because everybody's just going to heaven. Why did Christ even need to come? Well, Christ needed to come, and we know, so for our salvation, but also to show us that there had to be punishment. If God is truly just, then somebody had to pay the price. A bull, a goat, a lamb, or a ram or a man, somebody had to suffer. Somebody had to pay the price for sin. The Apostle Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6, verse 23, for the wages of sin is death. If you sin, you will die, is what he's saying. But the gift of God, the antithesis of that, the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Based upon what man is able to do, you're going to die. Based upon what Christ has done, you can live. Because again, God 
God is just and God is going to judge. As we see, oh, let's just go ahead real quick and turn over familiar scripture in Exodus chapter 33. What did Moses say to God? I want to see you. I want, I, want to, I want to see you, and I want to see who you are and all of that. And God said, well, come over here and stand on this rock. Stand in the cleft of this rock. And so Moses did. He stood in the cleft of the rock, and God passed by. And it shall be, it says in verse 22, and it shall be while my glory passes by that I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand while I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. When he says my back, he's saying just the, the outskirts, if you will, of the glory of God, kind of like, again, like a comet, how you see that tail, and as the, it's real bright at the comet, but it kind of fades away at the tail, and that's what God is saying. But Moses, you're not really seeing God. How, how are we able to see God? Well, we go into the next chapter, and the way that man is able to see God, able to know God and understand God, is by the name of God. In verse 5 in chapter 34, it says, Now the Lord descended in the cloud. Now this is what is happening as he's displaying himself back in chapter 33. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God. Now this is God's description of himself. Moses wants to see God. How do you see God? Well, the only way today that we see God is through the word of God. And proclaim the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. And you can say, yeah, that's my God, but don't leave out this last part because it's, it's, it's important. By no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generations. What that means, that does not mean that the children are going to be punished for their father's sin, but it's speaking of the effects that the father's sin is going to have on the future generations. So Moses made haste. This is what grasped Moses' soul. So Moses made haste and bowed his head towards the earth and worshipped. Who's he worshipping? He's worshipping a gracious, a merciful God, but also the God of judgment. And what's Moses well-versed in? He's well-versed in the thou shall, because if the thou don't, then the thou are going to be punished. And Moses knew that. He's seen some of that happen. He's seen fire come out of the sky. Well, he's going to see that here in a little bit. Fire come out of the sky and, and, and envelop these two men that were offering strange fire. There's going to be Achan later on. Achan's going to be Achan because God's judgment is going to come upon him. And again, you see these things that if you violate the commandments of God, then God is going to violate you. But he's gracious in his mercy. Now, as I'm raising a child, what is it that I'm teaching them first? I don't teach grace and mercy first. Don't touch that. Well, I'm going to date myself a little bit here. Don't touch that VCR. The most attractive thing in our house when we were raising our kids were the VCR. I think part of it was our fault because we could never program it, so it always blinked on and off, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 12 o'clock. And I think the kids interpret that as, touch me, touch me, touch me. Come and push the buttons. Sean's uh, kids, I think, pushed a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in the little door that was in there. I think they wanted to watch it on TV, and it didn't really work. And so you don't just say, well, you know, you touch it. I said not to touch I'm going to give you grace. Kids are not going to understand what you're just going to sit there and continue to touch it. Well, you teach them judgment first. And that's what God taught mankind. He taught mankind judgment, but it's because of judgment. It's because of my 
B.C. days, that now I understand the goodness of God. I understand God is truly merciful. I understand what it means to be long-suffering because I don't think I could suffer as long as he did, as he suffered with me. I don't think I could do that in another person's life. But I see and understand the magnitude of this goodness of God based upon the judgment of God. And then the cross and the blood, it preaches a closing statement. And the closing statement that it preaches is an invitation at the end of its sermon. Abel's blood left no invitation, only a proclamation of sin. But the blood of the cross, once again in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 24, Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of the sprinkling that speaks better things than that of Abel, verse 25, See that you do not refuse him who speaks. For if they did not escape who refused him who spoke on earth, much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him who speaks from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I shake not only the earth, but also heaven. Now this, yet once more, indicates the removal of those things which are being shaken, as of things that are made, that the things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. For our God is a consuming fire. And so the invitation that the cross gives, it goes out to everybody who realizes that they're a failure. It goes to all people who understand that they have done wrong to people who are filled with a sense of shame and guilt, for people who are weary, tired, and forlorn in their struggle to try and be good people, but are constantly and every day failing, for those who are understanding that they're a sinner and there is a separation from God, because in John chapter 16, we're told that that's the work of the Holy Spirit through the church, to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and judgment. Sin, that's why they don't want to hear you because they've got this guilt that they're trying to set down, they're trying to subdue, and they don't like you reminding reminding them of it. Of sin, of righteousness, because they know there is a God. They've chosen to suppress that knowledge, but they know that there is a God. Of judgment, because they know one day they're going to have to stand and give an account of themselves. All humanity understands that. They may not be able to explain it in theological details, but deep within their heart, they know that and they understand that. In Revelation chapter 22, verses 16 through 17, I, Jesus, have sent my messenger to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star, and the spirit in the Bible say, come, and let him who hears say, come, and let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. And so what the cross tells us, that there's got to be that necessary spirit of repentance deep within inside of us. Repentance that I understand again, that, well, not this sin and that sin, but that I sin. And that I'm nothing but a sinner. God, forgive me a sinner. But again, just to be repentant, that's not good enough. Because there's a lot of people out there that are hanging their heads and they're just... Well, they're just sorry sinners. They're repentant, but they, they, they've never done anything with this repentance, with this sin that they're repenting of. And that you must be repentive, but then you've got to take that repentance and that sin, you've got to take it to the cross of Christ. 
because he's the only one who's ever going to, he's the only one who's able or ever going to be able to do anything with it. And I have to know and I have to understand if I hold on to this, that, yeah, I'm going to live a life of guilt and I am going to pine away in my sin. So I've got to be repentant, but I also must come and partake of that sermon of the cross. Give of my sin to Christ. And Jesus said, once you do, I'll take it away from you. I'll take it as far as the east is from the west. Because remember, the day of a man's salvation, of a woman's salvation, is the day that the Lord has been looking forward to all of your life. He has no desire that you perish, but he wants you to live. And he wants you to come to that cross. Well, is this something that I have a choice in? Is this something that God has, has, has caused me to do? I mean, does God choose people? Or how does all that? Don't worry about that. Repent of your sin and come to the cross. That's the essence of evangelism. That's the essence of what the Scripture tells us to do as we're told to go out and make disciples. To repent of your sin, to come of the cross, and to give it to Christ. How do I give it to Christ? By simply believing on Him. Having faith in what Jesus said. That if I come to Him, and if I give Him my sin, that He will take my sin from me. Father, I thank You for this sermon. This sermon that has resonated throughout the ages. This sermon, Father, that speaks to all of mankind. This sermon, Lord, that speaks of better things without a doubt. This sermon which alludes to judgment also. Because those who refuse this sermon, refuse to answer this sermon, will will suffer judgment for eternity. And so, Father, as you have given us this day, as you have given us this opportunity to sit here in church, and again, Father, this message is for all of us, Lord, that for the born-again believer, that we would value the salvation that you have given us, this great salvation that you have bestowed upon us, and we will hold it as dear, that, Father, we would not live a lackadaisical Christian life, but an impassioned Christian life because of what you have done. But, Father, I pray for the unbeliever, the unbeliever that may even be here today, may be listening even right now. I I pray, Father, that you would not allow anybody to leave this place without seriously examining their soul. Their soul. Your soul that is valued by God. God's proclaimed it upon that cross. He wants you to have an ear to hear and a heart to come to Him. Come to Him to understand that you're a sinner and then to lay those sins down. And so, if you've been carrying that load, if you've been holding on to those sins and you've experienced the burden and you've experienced the guilt, I pray that you would take that next step today. That next step today to dump that which you have repented of and no longer carry it again. That you would truly leave it at the cross of Christ because, again, that's where He has taken upon the sins of the world. And the only thing that you need to do to leave it there is to believe that Jesus died for your sins and to receive Him as your Lord and Savior. As eyes are closed and heads are bowed, we'll give the opportunity even one more time. If you've yet to truly, when I say truly, I mean there's been so many invitations given, so many of us have answered invitations, but we've never really repented. We've never examined the sin condition and come to Christ with the knowledge of of myself as a failure and take this opportunity to do so. We acknowledge you just simply by the raising of your hands. And so, if there's anybody here that needs the salvation that the Lord has to offer, raise your hand. 
I'm just going to point it out. We're going to pray with you. We're brothers and sisters. We've all come into the kingdom the same way. I see your hand here to the front. I see your hand off to my left. It's not about you coming into a church. It's about you coming into the family of God. It's those who proclaim Christ that he has given the right to be called children of God. And this is just an outward expression that, Lord, I can't carry this burden anymore, and I give it over to you. If you're in the fellowship area out there, you can raise your hand out there. God will see you. Is there anybody else before we pray? It's a hard thing to do because what you're doing is you're admitting that you've been wrong up to this point and you're surrendering your life to Christ. Is there anybody else before we pray? Anybody else? Don't carry it for another day. It's not a load that you've been designed to carry. It's that which only Christ is able to. Anybody else? You can put your hand down. Father, you've seen the hands that have gone before you. And Lord, we just rejoice. We rejoice, especially on the cusp of this resurrection season, that we we celebrate, Father, that which occurred upon the cross. But Lord, we see it continuing to give throughout the ages, even up to this point, and that, Lord, you are the one who are able to change lives. As you have transformed our lives and you have transformed these two lives today, we look forward, Lord, to the lives that you want to transform through, Father, your spoken word of what you have done so long ago. So I lift up those who have raised their hands today, that you would fill them with your spirit. I pray that you would enable them to overcome those things that they struggle against. And I pray, Father, that they would understand and know that the struggle is over, that, Father, you have obtained victory for them. And so, again, Lord, we just thank you for today. We pray that you would bless us as we leave this place. Use us as we leave this place, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Will you all stand, please?